the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Jesse Gestand. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gestand. And I am yours in the flesh, truly right in front of you, talking with you. Um, Jesse Gestand, as you heard by the announcer on this Monday edition of Lifeline, glad to be with you for the next two hours, one hour and 55 minutes to be precise, precisely and factual, according to the clock here. Um, the number one, triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine, one, triple eight, three, six, seven, five, three, two, nine. We exercise our constitutional rights to gather together, to assemble the freedom to worship, the freedom to bear arms, but mostly the freedom of speech for which we have such a program as this, where we can forum and discuss, even debate civilly, rationally, and biblically around matters that are important to us. And therefore, while we have breath and a vital working constitution, some might argue, let us engage our minds and our hearts around things that can edify, build us up, challenge us, if you will, Push the parameters of our mental muscles so that we can expand, grow, develop, um, be more informed, and therefore more prepared and challenged to deal with our world. The world you live in, the world I live in, ladies and gentlemen, is designed to challenge you. You don't get to wake up in the morning, engage your day, uh, and consummate your day without knowing that you have a lot of things for which you have to assess, analyze, give your opinions, and in some cases, practically avoid, challenge, confront, overcome. And with all that, because life is simply a toil under the sun, as Solomon put it in the Ecclesiastes, all the labor of man, all labor is full of toil and burden, and in many ways, grievous and, uh, and difficult and, uh, Toilsome in many, many ways. So how does the child of God, the people of God, the, the saints of the living God or professing believers of God actually negotiate the world that they are living in? How do you how do you um, hold intention being in the world, but not of the world without it being simply a kind of rhetorical, vacuous statement, which, you know, a lot of people would be inclined to make. How do you actually live here in this world in a way in which your professed faith in Christ actually really does what it's called to do? And that is to manifest God's glory in a way by which people are made aware once more that through your life, you are truly 
uh, a, a pilgrim and stranger passing through with the objective of helping men and women come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and the living God, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he had sent so that they might find themselves capable of escaping this wicked, wicked world, topsy-turvy world, broken world, troubled world, painful world, conflicted world that you see every day on the television or whatever means of media you um, are using to inform yourself. How do you um, how do you maintain um, a, a vital, a really vital uh, Christianity in this world? With that, I'm going to actually raise a question that I think might begin to open the door, if you will, to the church so that y'all might enter in and uh, and, and dialogue with yours truly around um, an essential concept, and that is the witness of God through his people and by his people for his glory and the good of mankind. So here's the question I want to pose as I'm thinking about an article that I'm uh, perusing, even as you and I speak, and that particular article is Growing Up Christian, Christian in a Secular World. How does <clears throat> a believer... Uh, handle uh, the shape and character, tone, rhetoric, um, hostility, antipathy, if you will, um, virtual and um, and uh, factual contradictions of life. How do you deal with being in a world that is filled with pluralism, pluralistic ideas, pluralistic concepts, a pluralistic uh, secularism that fundamentally denies the exclusivity of biblical truth? How do you deal with that kind of world um, in the school, at your jobs, uh, in your place of uh, extracurriculums? How do you deal with pluralism? How do you deal with secularism? The notion that um, the only thing that really matters is what's here and now. Uh, eternity does not matter. The future in terms of what happens after this life does not matter. H- how do you deal with a kind of humanism that is clearly and clinically narcissistic in terms of uh, men and women being so bent on their own actual felt needs that um, that we really cannot see the forest for the trees? Or how do you deal with uh, the clamor of a massive political machine that's constantly telling you you are irrelevant in the world if you don't have a party position, if you don't take up politics in a, in a visceral way to begin to oppose all the injustices that are going on in the world? And ladies and gentlemen, there are Tons of injustices that are taking place today. My heart broke over the continued abuse of children, which has been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, The value and worth of children was altogether lifted, exalted and honored in Christ. When he said, suffer the children to come unto me for such are the kingdom of heaven, even his own disciples were somewhat bereft of the recognition of the Imago Dei and children. Um, How do you deal with that? How do you deal with your own uh, propinquities, uh, nearness to, if you will, uh, vanities and and, and compromises and uh, superficiality in life as a believer? So I'm going to turn it right back around as I'm wetting your whistle, and uh, I'm looking forward to the dialogue. Again, the number one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. How do you, as a professing Christian, really, 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 Handle this world, 
particularly <clears throat> if you don't have a solid biblical worldview, a solid biblical worldview. Um, can a Christian really, really, really do life in this world well without a biblical worldview? In fact, that's a question I will pose. It's not assumed that every Christian, professing Christian, is sound enough in the faith that they have a holistic view of what God expects, what God requires, what God determines, mandates, um, and what he has prophetically set forth, this world to be and the world to come. It's not necessarily true that every person you meet professing to be a believer in Christ understands who created the universe, how he created it, why he created it, what its destiny is, and what is the mission of mankind in that particular uh, trajectory of history until we move into the new age. You you, you really don't always have uh, a biblical Christian, if you will, um, who can actually not only answer those things in terms of apologetics, but but live it out, live it out. How do you and I... um, can you value the, the the query that I'm doing just kind of extemporaneously off the top of my head? Because that's kind of where I'm orbiting right now. I want to land in that particular space and, and kind of formulate a question before we go to break here in a moment. And I'm going to press into you to ask you to join me in a discussion around one. Is it possible to be a Christian without a functional working biblical worldview. Is it possible to be a Christian who says they trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, but really are completely detached from the biblical mandates, prophecies, dictums, precepts, laws uh, by which we shape our lives? Is that possible? Is it possible to be a Christian without a biblical worldview? That is to say, without a good working knowledge of your Bible. Is that possible? Um, and if it is, and I think it is, I, I would I would render yes and no. I'm, I'll share with you why after the break. If it's not possible to be a Christian um, without a working biblical worldview, and and you and, and the two are almost synonymous in your mind or in your view, if 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 what it means to really be a Christian or a believer in Christ, which is the same thing. Uh, And therefore, um, it is incumbent upon me to actually have a working knowledge of the word of God relative to my call as a Christian. What does that look like for you? These are going to kind of be the questions I pose. one 888 Is it possible to be a believer in Christ? You know, hallelujah, I believe in Jesus and yet actually not have a working functional biblical worldview. Having used that term worldview, I'll have to explain it a little bit. But is that possible for those of you who who kind of orbit around the Bible hither and yon? Is it possible for you to be kind of a loose, goosey, professing Christian Christian with really a kind of personal uh, hope in Jesus, kind of a personal commitment to the uh, romanticized notion of a Savior but in fact of matter, don't have a larger, more grander and concrete understanding of this Savior in terms of his office as king and sovereign, as counselor, 
as mighty God, as Prince of Peace, upon whose shoulders the government shall stand and of his kingdom, there shall be a ongoing peace forever and ever. Kind of a small composite of the role of the son given and the child born of Isaiah 9, 6, if you know that. So when you come to know Jesus, you have to know some things about him in order to be able to live for him and live with him and live by him. So I'm asking the question. I do want to engage you in this. Have you have you found yourself as an article that I am going to read when I come back from the break as a Christian growing up in this secular world, being challenged with the pressures of pluralism? Pluralism is that always a right. Pluralism is the idea that every way of man is right in his own eyes. Like you can't say to a pluralist. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by him. And, and believe you me, there are a whole lot of pluralists that are, that are walking around in the facade of a Christian, a believer in Christ, and yet they are practicing functionally in their convictions about life as a pluralist. Now, I, I don't have a problem with the world being pluralistic. I really don't. Um, Christ told us that it would be that way. Matthew 7, the wide road that leads to destruction would be the road of pluralism. Um, and then, as I said earlier, the secularist, a secular worldview that only lives for now and pleasure and self-gratification. Uh, we could go down the list. There are all kinds of, of ideologies that basically frame and shape our culture. But pluralism will be one that dominates us. Secularism would be another one that dominates our culture. We, we think uh, the amassing of wealth and the gathering of goods constitutes our value. Um, again, existentialism, which denies any um, uh, universal reality beyond ourselves as authoritative binding and necessary to give account to um, existentialism is really kind of the, the, the foundation for a narcissistic notion that um, I, me, myself is all that really matters. And therefore, I build my world around who I am and how I feel and what I can get out of it. Crazy notion, I know. But still, let's think about these things and ask the question. I may be a professing believer, do, but do I operate out of a pluralistic? Um, do I operate out of a secular? Do I operate out of an existential meism that is really rooted in a kind of narcissistic humanism? Um, and I'd love to engage you in that. Because if the question raised, can you be a Christian and not have a biblical worldview is true, then a lot of people are in trouble. And if the question is raised or uh, um, responded to in the uh, negative, no, you cannot be a believer, a Christian, and not have a biblical worldview. What are the implications of that with regards to the many people who appear to not really have a strong working knowledge of the Bible and its mandates, dictates, precepts, etc.? You see, I'm reminded right now of a young man, in fact, four young men, who somewhere around 587, 585, 565, 570 B.C. were brought into captivity by the Babylonians. And their names are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As you would know them, if you know the proverbial story, you learned all those years back in, in children's church and Sunday school, and how that they were being uh, forced by the power of the state, the monarchical domination of Nebuchadnezzar, to change their identity from being Jewish Hebrews 
to being Babylonians. In fact, their names were changed. Their clothing were changed. Their, uh, their space was changed. They were brought into and were forced to absorb into, integrate into the whole Babylonian system. And do you remember what happened in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 through 19, where Daniel said to the eunuch who had um, really uh, greatly admired Daniel, hey, we are not eating the king's food. We're not eating the king's meat. We can do our job without having to succumb to eating the diet of the Babylonians. And uh, the end of that chapter proved that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, having called on God to help them in this this dire uh, trouble, proved that their diet being strictly kosher allowed them greater health, better health, and better wisdom, and better insight, and and better understanding, and therefore better productivity as a witness uh, to the world of the Babylonians than if they would have compromised by eating the meat of the king at his table. And, and, and if we can carry that over by application, what does it mean for a believer to eat the king's meat in this neo-Babylonian culture? What would that mean? And, and what would be the impact? And what would it mean for you not to eat the king's meat in this Babylonian culture? What does that look like? one 367 one It's kind of like what I am sharing with you really has to do with whether or not you and I are really disciples. Go ye into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything that I have told you, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. It's kind of what we're talking about. Two lines open, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. Looking forward to talking with you. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. All right, we're back to the time, 525 on the Monday edition of, of Lifeline. I've got two lines open, one 367 I'll wait until they're filled up so that we can get to running. I'm, I'm basically, you know, I'm basically saying slow down a little bit. Um, just slow it down in your mind and, and narrow your, 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 your perspective and focus. Um, let's kind of uh, hone in on a, a fundamental question that, that believers are to deal with, and that is, Am I operating um, out of a consistent, coherent, uh, biblical worldview in relationship to my profession as a, as a believer in Christ? I think this has everything to do with boring down into authenticity. Boring down into authenticity. As a human being, we have the uncanny ability to put on a form of godliness or a facade of personhood and really actually be substantially unlike what we say we are. Would you agree with that? Um, I, would also decide, I would also say with that possibility, um, and, 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 and what I see is a world that does that a lot uh, in relationship to actually not knowing who they are and not knowing why they are who they are, particularly um, when you take up an identity relevant to the believer would be an identity of Christ. You say you're a believer and you're a Christian. The moment you go, I am a Christian, you know what you're doing? You are adopting an identity. Now, if that's the case, and I know that it is, um, because the term was given to us in the book of Acts, and we're around chapter 14, 15, where people simply observed the doctrine and deeds of a people group 
who were in allegiance with Messiah, who happens to have been Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. That's the word Christos. The term is Creo in the uh, in the Greek, and its rooted verb means to anoint. And so Christians are anointed ones because of their allegiance and spiritual ontology, uh, connection to Christ in them, the hope of glory. And what that simply means is that uh, there are tangible, empirical evidences of your relationship to Christ, not to you, to others, by which they call you Christians. I've said it in the congregation I pastor now for decades. Don't tell somebody you're a Christian. You don't hear people saying that. You don't hear that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell you to tell people you are a Christian. You you don't have to tell people you're a Christian. They actually should tell you that you're a Christian. They should be able to look at you and go, oh, oh, you must be a believer. And, and that would mean that they would be informed enough to know what a believer really is and why he is that believer. Of course, in our culture where we are moving fast past a biblical worldview or a post-Christian era, and we know this by the stats today of how many, how few people rather know anything about the Bible at all, even here in the Bay Area where we are lauded to, to be, you know, largely moderate uh, and even Christian, Christian. Uh, what is it? It's something like 5% that are actually associated with um, with, with Christianity on any level. Um, in, in, in California, is that wild or not? And we got 30 plus million people here in, a, in California. And a lot of them have been exposed to it, maybe on a traditional level, but don't ad- adhere to it or, or practice it. And so we've got a major task in front of us, do we not, um, to actually um, work through this particular speculation. And that's this. Can I be a Christian? Can I be a believer in Christ? and actually not have a biblical worldview. Convictions about how this world was made, who made it, and why it was made the way that it was made. Who is mankind? Why was he created? And what happened to him? What is his present condition now? And and why does he do what he do? And why are we in the kind of melee and, 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 and disjointed, chaotic uh, uh, difficulties that we are as a society? And what is the biblical solution? And how does mankind find himself in a right relationship with, with God and, and this? therefore brought back into a saving space so that he can actually recover and experience the original mandate that God had given mankind before the fall. Um, Let us create man in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion over everything. Let them subdue it. Let them procreate. Let them um, exercise stewardship dominion over the universe as Genesis 1, 26 and 27 would assert. Um, That's what the believer is here for to talk to the people of the world about why they are not of the world. And so I'm, 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 I'm basically raising the question, are you operating in that, in that particular premise? How well are you doing? And if you're not doing that well, you know, let's talk about that too. Is it possible that you as a believer are having trouble as a Christian on your job, in your home, at your school, Are you as a believer struggling with being able to express a biblical worldview in a way that honors God, honors his word, honors the faith? Um, but, but, but it's really challenged by either opposition or internal fears and phobias. 
This is really a good, a good and, and pertinent uh, uh, set of instructions because if, in fact, the mandate is that you and I are to be light and salt in this world, um, we have no option but to do that if we're going to affirm and make our calling an election sure. Would you agree with that? You may or may not. Anyhow, we can talk about it. one 367 Before I go to the phone lines, I'm going to saturate your thoughts with a few Bible verses. Then I'll take a break, and then we'll come back, and uh, hopefully we can get at the conversation. I'm thinking again about the words of Daniel, just some powerful words that are laid out uh, in the book of Daniel that we want to hear in terms of his resolve. Daniel said in verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who hath appointed appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse likening than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me in danger and my head will be cut off by the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are three Hebrew brothers. Prove your servants. I beseech you ten days and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. That's just a kind of mush of food that really doesn't have a whole lot of um, nutrient in, in it. When you look behind the Hebrew here in the term. He says, but we want that and water and nothing else. We don't want all of the delicacies of the king. We don't want to be fattened up the way the king wants to fatten us up. Then let our continence be looked upon before you and the continence of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. Doesn't matter whether whether these, uh, these children, that is young people, teenagers, young adults, are believers or not. Which means in our context, there were a lot of Jews who ate the king's meat which is where I'm going in our discourse tonight. Then let our continence be looked upon before thee and the continence of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat. And as you see, deal with your servants. So he consecrated to them in this matter and proved them 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their continences appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them poles. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days that the king had said unto him, he should bring them in. The princes of the eunuch brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king commanded with them, communed with them. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king and in all matters of wisdom, understanding that the king inquired of them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians, astrologers that were in all the realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. What a lesson. What a lesson. Refuse the Babylonian meat. Humble yourself under a diet that fundamentally and practically and 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 on a, uh, a literal level does not have the nutrients necessary after 10 days to put you in the kind of health that made them stellar. And in the humility of these men to maintain their identity as Hebrews, God exalted them. 
What a lesson for you and me. I've got two lines open, one 888 Can you be a real believer in this world and not hold to adhere in a robust way a biblical worldview? And it'd be honoring to God. one 888 I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. We're back the time 539 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I have been probing the question, the very germane and relevant question of whether or not we can be uh, Christians, believers in the Bible, uh, and yet not have a biblical worldview, Um, call ourselves uh, knowers and lovers of Christ, and yet not have a functional biblical worldview by which we actually are able to live in this world and, uh, and deal with the challenges of this world. And I have uh, been calling on you to to engage me in this topic. I've got two lines open still. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine is a biblical worldview absolutely essential to affirming your Christianity. And how difficult is it for you to function through that biblical worldview? What I have is an article from a young man who is very much concerned about young believers who grow up in this secular society, and I think he makes some really good points. I'm going to read it, then I'll go to the phone lines. I I really want to know, are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you the will and to do of his good pleasure in a way by which Christ's glory is manifested through you because you are being transformed and renewed in your mind? You're thinking God's thoughts after him, and you are sharing God's thoughts with the world. The article goes, Christians have yet to fully assess the pressures of growing up in a pluralistic society. We are not sure what to do with the feelings that we have. The doubts that fill our hearts seem unsettling at best and horrific and unspeakable at worst. For many young believers are Christians, an open ear does not exist. And the church has been of little help. Young people are not sure what to do or where to go. This has left me wondering, have we unknowingly aided our youth in their secularizing flight from God? If so, what can we do? As I look back on my experience and see how so many of my friends have left the Christian faith or become complacent, see what he said, left the faith or become dormant. I, like many others, have desperately sought to find answers to what we experience and what we see around us. The unanswered questions and feelings in a teen's head and heart are, at the time, seemingly unbearable. Besides all the changes of entering into adulthood, growing up in a secular America makes it even more difficult for Christians. Do you guys identify with that? Now, if you're a parent, do you see what this young man is saying the real challenge of a professing young believer is in a crazy world that's really not giving them an, an ear in terms of uh, the, the, the message of the gospel coming through believers? And if it's hard for you, do you know how hard it is for them? And what should we do about preparing them for this crazy world? one 888 one Two lines open. Want to hear from you. Let me go to line number two and talk with Susan in Fremont. Susan, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm good. What's your question, thoughts, or comments? Well, I, re- I really love this topic. Okay. Because... Um, 
I love God. I know I'm a Christian. Uh-huh. But it's I it's like I don't understand or didn't understand the meat. I think where scripture says it's the renewing of your mind. Mm-hmm. And also in the combination where you know when I was a child I thought like a child and and somehow I think our culture is geared to keeping us as Christian as children. Love it. I mean, we 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 really we love Jesus. We know we know we're going to heaven. But when someone says something or we read an article, we kind of pull back because I I don't have the meat. Yeah. And um, I was talking to some friend. Uh, I had. I had got I had a CD that I got a hold of by Lee Strobel. Uh huh. Um, the the case the case for Christ. Sure. And I was totally blown over by it because uh-huh. it just gave, you know, God is this and look what He did and 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 it was amazing. Yeah. Um, oh, you you asked the other day, um, is God beautiful? Yeah. And absolutely. And mm-hmm. and why is He beautiful? Because he thought of everything, yeah. and um, I was talking to some friends, and they said, "Well, have you heard about the Truth Project?" Mm-hmm. And that is, it was produced by Focus on the Family. So I looked into it, I purchased it, and it is talking about uh, the Christian worldview and the world, the world's worldview. Yeah, secular worldview. Worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And step by step, he's taking a look at. Um, the whole thing of creation and uh, uh, the science approaches it from science and the state and the family and the community and the church and how God has designed every institution, um, has every institution when it's patterned after God's design is, works beautifully. It's heaven. Yeah. But then he also shows how man in our nature we want to be our own God. Yep. And I just wanted to share that as an absolutely phenomenal resource. For, both um, both yeah. of those are, both of those are very good, Susan, in terms of what their aim is, uh, focus on the family. Um, all of your um, Christian uh, family ministries are very much aware of kind of the larger impact of my fundamental um, query or statement that I'm making that I want to engage people with. And that's this. First of all, I I thank you that you did affirm that, you know, a while back before you came across these resources, you were trapped in a baby's mindset as a believer and unable to know how to express, comprehend or walk in a biblical worldview and and you knew that that was a struggle, didn't you? Yes. Right. And this is where I want to engage people. I'm not getting many people to, to respond, but I do want to engage them because I know that there are lots of people who are still where you were, very much still where you were and have not been able to find the kind of resources which – to be honest with you, should be a common parlance and a a, a, a a common staple in every local church. I'm sorry, don't want to kind of come off as bashing the local church, but the problem is our local churches should be training institutions for building up brand new baby Christians into mature believers in no time short if we were to really take the word of God seriously 
and present to them from the time of their conversion a biblical worldview. Because even though we are babies in Christ, we are physically old enough when we are converted frequently, Susan, to be able to quickly grow um, at a, a significant rate because we are physically mature and have enough intellectual capacity to actually take on the important doctrines of the word of God if we would give ourselves to the task of it. And if our leadership and our churches were qualified and capable of teaching the congregation how to grow up into all things in Christ, which is where you were coming from. You quoted two or three verses. One, you quoted First um, uh, Peter chapter 2, which tells us that we must desire the sincere milk of the word, that we might grow thereby. You also quoted Romans chapter 12, to be renewed by the transforming, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might know what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. And then you said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, but when I became an adult, I put away childish things, that last verse, 1 Corinthians 13, is really laying out the necessary process of growth that every believer must engage in in order to fully realize faith in Christ. And this is where the dilemma is, and this is where our conversation is today, that it's not it's not going to be comfortable or even confirming in the lives of men and women uh, that you are really a believer um, if you don't know what you believe in. Um, even the idea of believing in Jesus and hoping that you will go to heaven is substantially compromised if a person comes along and really challenges you on the nature of God, the biblical concept of the plurality of persons in the Godhead, and then the whole idea of the incarnation relative to how important it is for us to believe that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh. And what that meant in terms of his uh, redemptive work as a substitute for sinners and why his death on the cross was the fundamental work that God has sent him to do to actually redeem us. These are fundamentals to a Christian's faith so that if they can't express those things, Susan, um, they might be in danger of believing in a different or a wrong or a deficient Jesus. This is why it is imperative that Christians become disciples. There's no two ways about it. Like you can't be a Christian and not be a disciple. And you would agree with that now, now that you have been by God's providence drawn near to God in such a way that you see his beauty in the total coherent system of revelation called the word of God, by which you know God is creator and redeemer from before time into eternity to come. Now he's beautiful to you. Now he's glorious to you because he has a complete sovereign application across the whole spectrum of human experience in your mind because you've gone deeper with him in his word and resources have been given to you for that purpose. That's really, really, really what we're talking about. So thank you for your call. Call again. I'm going to take a break. I've got three lines open. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Want to hear you on this. Love to hear what you know or think you know or don't know. Um, like Susan, who didn't know but now knows. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Let's talk about it. And now back to Lifeline with Jesse Gistand. All right, we've got three lines open. One triple eight one eight 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 three six seven five three two nine. I am asking you, talking about um, uh, a believer 
either being effective in their understanding of the universe, the world, the God they say they love and serve, who he is, what he did, why he did it, who we are, why we are, and why we do what we do. Because I'm sure you know there's an enemy out there called the devil and Satan who works to destroy God's kingdom in four strategic areas. First, an utter assault, an open, blatant, naked assault on the person and work of Christ. That was the Genesis 3, 1 through 7 narrative, which corresponds with the Matthew 4, 1 through 11 narrative. If you be the son of God, he works to destroy the center and foundation of the gospel, which is the person and work of Christ. If he can do that, he can let you be Christian all you want to. And he'll know that you're not Christian because you actually don't have a savior. And then his goal is to destroy the church. He's radically ravaged the church as Revelation chapter uh, 13, Revelation 12, 17 says, and he made war with the woman and her children, the remnant seed who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ as a war against the church. And the church had been riddled with heresy and false doctrine and heterodoxy and all sorts of aberrant things. From the beginning, even the days of the apostles. So he goes after the son of God, goes after the church, destroys the pulpit, destroys the pew. Then he goes after the family, the family. His job is to utterly deconstruct the biblical heterodoxical uh, family, uh, not heterodoxical, but heterosexual family of a male, female and children, as the Bible teaches that should fill this earth and subdue it with a gospel mandate. And then he goes after the believer, systematically, the believer, the family, the church, and Christ, Christ, the church, the family, the believer. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It's a huge battle. Three lines open, one 888 How are you doing in your biblical worldview of knowing it, retaining it, living it out, and letting it be a witness for you not getting any calls what's going on with you out there you know this battle is on let's talk about it let me go to line number one and talk with deb in oakland deborah what's your thoughts question or observations about our topic jesse can you hear me yes i can jesse you could have told my 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 dad's story from the very beginning how my dad was a missouri lutheran pastor's son yeah who whose father was a, a a drunkard for years and beat up his wife and children every day. Wow. My dad said he didn't believe in the reality of the love of God. Yeah. And then, then he had me and I, I came out of my mom with a disability because of a mistake a doctor did at my birth at six months. Yeah. I was able-bodied and came out disabled from the waist down. Right. So I understand this and right. I know that in order to have people understand, they have to see the reality of a real relationship with God in the life of a person. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes the difference. Now, let me ask you, in regards to your dad, did he ever recover? Yes, he did. He okay. became a Christian. Yeah, so he did recover. He worked for the Full Gospel Businessmen for years as a director and in San Leandro for years. Okay, okay. How about your mom? How was she? She uh, was a Catholic. Her family was Catholic mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
a friend of mine was a Catholic, but he was a spirit-filled Catholic, but, uh, Holy Spirit-filled Catholic, mm-hmm. and he led my mother to the Lord because I asked him to talk to her, mm-hmm. and he was able to share with her mm-hmm. in a way she understood, so she became a Christian. So she, both of these two knew that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from works, right? Right, because you know Catholicism holds Jesus plus Mary plus the sacraments, and, oh, and they, they they didn't. He told her all that was not true. Yeah, that's good because I know that that's very much possible and absolutely necessary within that particular denomination that they have to abandon all that if they're going to actually find Christ to be um, a reality in their life. So, see what you're saying to me, and I want to I, I want to affirm this is that there was a wreck, a spiritual wreck that took place in your family some multiple decades ago, even before you came into the world um, that basically decimated your home. Um, And when you came in, it was broken and God recovered it. Yep. He recovered it. And here you, I'm a a testimony to it. Right. And here you are um, realizing that men and women have to be able to see God's grace uh, working through the lives of believers, uh, both doctrinally and practically. Yes, they do. Right. So how do you, how do you, before I let you go, how do you hold a biblical worldview over against this anti-biblical worldview system that would seek to tell you that what you believe is not true? How do you engage people with, with, with that kind of tension and conflict when, whenever you have that opportunity? Because like Daniel, I tell people there are certain things that uh, God is pursuing me. I'm not pursuing him. Right. And and that's the secret. God pursues you. Mm-hmm. And what do you have to do when he pursues you? Um, he just looks for you because he said, I came to seek the lost. Mm-hmm. So he already knows that we're lost. Exactly. So he, he seeks us yeah. and provides, he, he brings us into a place where we realize that we're lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his solution is what? His solution is uh, to uh, bring us to a, a, real, a, a realization that, that his son, Jesus Christ, is the one and only sovereign of the world. Yep. And there's none other. Yep. That's absolutely right. Ain't no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. You agree with that, don't you? Oh, yes, Absolutely. <laughs> All right, listen, I'm going to let you go because we're at the top of the hour. Thank you for calling in and confirming once again the importance of having a biblical worldview. Um, No matter what our challenges are, we still have hope for glory because God can't lie, change, or fail. And no matter how broken it is, based on what you heard Deb say, God can bring it back. He can bring it around. He can he can turn it around. He can restore brokenness. And I actually believe that. But God's people have to be able to maintain a witness that God is true and every man is a liar. We're going to take a break. But again, all the phone lines are open and I'd love to hear from you. Um, no matter how challenging you are, uh, you are with this proposition. Susan said she went a long time with being a babe and did not have confidence that she could actually uh, talk about God or the complications of this world system at any level until she came across some very solid apologetic data 
such as Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, and then some very devotional data around how the family is to be constructed. In fact, that was also somewhat apologetic because the material from um, Focus on the Family dealt with a biblical worldview in relationship to families. And without this data, can I share something with you? You don't have a sword. You don't have a shield. You don't have the preparation of the gospel uh, for your feet. Your feet are not shod. You can't say you have the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation leaves you without it leaves your head open for mortal wounding. This is why so much trouble is going on in our families and in our churches today. That's why this conversation is germane. Are we eating the the, the king's meat from the table of the Neo-Babylonian system? Uh, having our identity really wrapped up in what this world looks like and what it wants versus what we really and truly need? Are we inclined to be Christian on Sunday, but yet be um, believer? I mean, non-believers on Monday through Saturday? See, this is what I'm talking about. Three lines open, one 888 Let's talk about it. I don't care how much of a struggle it is. Let's talk about it. I'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. Salem 